0: Good morning, Door Creek, how are we doing? Good. Morning. Good, it's so good to see you. Uh, my name is Ryan, I am the campus pastor up at the DeForest campus. It's really good to be with you today. I'm missing my family and friends uh, up there, but hey, you guys will do. <laughs> I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. Hey, we're one church, right, we're one church. No, no, really, really uh, happy to be here with y'all. Uh, happy Father's Day, right, yes, good. Uh, yeah. Uh, at the first service, I saw a guy like, like, what does that even mean, Father's Day? Like, I contributed almost nothing to the conception and caring of my children, but uh, hey, you have a day, so enjoy it. I, I have it on good authority that, um, well, I actually have it in writing, this, as of this morning, from my six-year-old son, August, that I'm the world's best dad. So, <laughs> sorry, guys. Honestly, I didn't even know I was in the running, Uh, And now I have the terrible job to call my dad today and let him know the bad news that he's been dethroned. So God's been doing some really cool stuff. in and through Door Creek Church. Can I show you some of the stuff he's been doing uh, up at DeForest? So last Sunday, we got to baptize a number of folks who have said yes to Jesus and yes to his mission. It was just an awesome day of celebrating uh, God's growing family, right? And people saying yes and getting baptized. is really, really cool. Uh, and one of the things, so this girl right here, her name is, her name is Violet. Uh, she's 12 years old. And one of the things we asked everyone to do was to like read a faith statement that they wrote, which was basically like, here's why I'm getting baptized. Here's what Jesus means to me. And usually it's a few sentences. It's really short, but she wrote like a dissertation. (laughs) It was so long, but so awesome. And it really cool to see what God had been doing in her and everyone else there. So uh, we covet your prayers up into forest and, you know, we pray for you and love you as well. So we're in this series, uh, a teaching series for the next several weeks, called Tales of the Kingdom. And during this series, what we're doing is we're looking at these different parables, these little stories, uh, earthly stories with a heavenly meaning, that tell us about this mysterious and multifaceted thing that we call the Kingdom of God. The Kingdom of God. And you can't read through one of the Gospels without being hit with the kingdom of God. In fact, it is the primary theme of Jesus' life and his teaching. And we won't, get this, we won't get Jesus if we don't get what he's teaching us about the kingdom. So, we're looking at these parables. Today, we're going to be uh, looking at uh, the parable of the weeds in the field from Matthew chapter 13. So, if you want to turn your Bible on or flip there, um, you totally can. Last week, John Anderson uh, did a really good job of setting us up with this kind of big picture view of what the kingdom of God is. And here's how he defined it, and I like this it's God's people living under God's rule. It's God's people living under God's rule. But, but there's a there's a weirdness, there's a weirdness here, and maybe you've picked up on this. Uh, it's that sometimes it doesn't feel like God's in charge, and the reason for that is because the kingdom of God is already here. It's present. It's transforming lives through the gospel of Jesus, but it hasn't worked itself fully out yet in the world. And one day it will because one day Jesus is gonna come back as the, as the king, as the Messiah, and he's gonna restore and renew this world. But what do we do in the meantime? It's kind of a good question, right? What are we supposed to be doing now? And that's what these parables help fill in for us. So uh, we're gonna look at Matthew chapter 13, but first I wanna tell you about um, kind of the transition that I've been on with my family over the past couple of, well, few, three, four months, Uh, So back in February is when we said yes to this opportunity to serve at the DeForest campus. And we're really excited, but also really sad because we had to say goodbye to a lot of very close friends. So we started packing. We started saying our goodbyes. And basically, by early March, we were living out of boxes in our own house. And uh, March 25th, we started a four-day drive across uh, Nevada, Utah, Wyoming, Nebraska, which was like half the trip, uh, or at least felt that way, Iowa, and then Wisconsin, and, and we landed in Sun Prairie in the basement apartment of some friends there with basically just the suitcases we had in the car. Uh, so <clears throat> did you guys know everyone's trying to move here? You know that? So it's really hard to buy a house, and it's really hard to find a dry place to store your stuff, uh, but by God's grace, uh, through actually a connection at, at Door Creek uh, in, in DeForest. We found a place to put our stuff because the truck came and we put it in the garage while we searched for a house and that was an experience. Uh, but I won't bring you through all that. Meanwhile, uh, I started at Door Creek up in DeForest on Easter Sunday, April 1st, April Fool's Day. Joke's on you, Door Creek. <laughs> and they're still figuring that out. Um, and we, we've been making lots of new friends. We celebrated a couple of birthdays in our family, an anniversary. Uh, we broke ground on the new DeForest campus. We, um, we got a house, our first house ever in DeForest, which is exactly what we were praying for. And last Monday, so this is really fresh, we closed on the house, we got the keys, and with the help of a whole bunch of incredible people, uh, door creakers up in DeForest, we moved in, and by 11 o'clock that night, we were still putting the beds together, and some of our new friends Uh, We're literally waiting with the sheets of our our kids' beds in their hands. We put the beds together, and they put the sheets on so our kids had a place to sleep that felt like home, in a new home. Uh, And then everyone left, and it's super late, and Bri and I are exhausted, and we we found some chairs, and we put them out on our porch, and we sat down there, and we were just like, ah, we're home. We're home, right? Have you ever felt that? We, we were in this new to us but old 1963 ranch that we just love, right? And in the middle of this community that God called us to that we loved and we were home finally. It's this great feeling and we went to bed and then, the next morning, I woke up and I encountered this. <laughs> and this, <laughs> I was like, wait a second. I thought we were home. This doesn't feel like home. This feels like chaos, right? And not only do we need to unpack, but uh, there are all these things that we, like I didn't know yet. I needed to learn about the house and the neighborhood and, and where's, where do I get gas in the car and, and what are all these trees and bushes in, in our yard? What, what are they? How do we take care of them? And man, the floor really needs to be refinished and all of these things. We were home, but it didn't feel like home yet. And when you're people of the kingdom, people of the kingdom live in this tension where we're home, but it doesn't feel like home yet. Why not? Because the kingdom of God is a present reality that hasn't worked itself out yet. So when you identify with Jesus and you make that decision, you become at that moment a resident alien right where you are. And that's the that's the tension that we all live in when we become followers of Jesus and that's what this parable of the weeds in the field is all about. So let's look at Matthew chapter 13 starting in verse 24. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is a man who sowed, is like a man who sowed good seed in his field but while everyone was sleeping his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds appeared also. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you were pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them into bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Okay? So uh, one of the main reasons I chose this parable is because parables are hard to understand, uh, but Jesus gives us an explanation here. So sorry, all you other preachers who have to preach on other stuff, I chose this one. Uh, So let's look at at Jesus' explanation of the parable that starts in verse 36. Then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, explain to us the the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. And the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out His angels, and they will weed out of His kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. So why is Jesus telling this story? Well, he's telling the story because, because his disciples, his followers, were confused. And they were confused Because as Jesus was going about telling people about the kingdom and claiming to be this Messiah, this ruler, this king, his disciples weren't seeing what they thought they should see. Because some people followed him, but lots of people rejected him. So his disciples were scratching their heads, like Jesus, wait, wait a second. If you're really the Messiah, why are, like, the religious leaders, the ones who are supposed to be in your corner, why are they blasting you all the time? Like, you know, Jesus, you know that they're telling people that you get your power from the devil, right? Like, you know that, that right now they're plotting to assassinate you, Right? And then there's John the Baptist. Like, if anyone in the whole Bible should have been in Jesus' corner through thick and thin, it would have been John the Baptist, the one who had been, uh, well, he was Jesus' cousin, first of all. And then he was anointed in the the spirit and power of Elijah to proclaim and, and kind of pave the way for Jesus. And right now, he was in death row, and he was questioning. Like, wait a second, really? So he sent his followers, you can read about this in Matthew 10. He sent his followers to Jesus like, are you sure you're the one? And and guys, Jesus' own mother was questioning. I think this is in Matthew uh, 12. Jesus is teaching in a room, and his mother knocks on the door and says, can you send Jesus out here? I need to set him straight. Like, how awkward is that? Imagine I'm like talking here, and my mom walks through like the center aisle, and is like, Ryan, can I have a word with you? You guys would be like, uh... So his disciples were like, we don't get it, Jesus. I mean, you're talking about this kingdom. We're we're just not seeing it. And so Jesus tells this parable to say that, yeah, the kingdom is here, but it doesn't feel like it is. Why not? Well, because even when you identify with Jesus, you still live in a world that's rejected him. I mean, do you guys feel that out in the world? Have you ever driven in a country where they, they drive on the left side of the road? Show of hands. A few people. Okay, so you, you get the disorienting nature of that. And I had that experience on a mission trip in India, and the, the, the drive from the airport in Kolkata to the hostel where we were staying was terrifying. Just, just mind I had to close my eyes, because I was like, we are going to die. Spoiler alert. We didn't die. I'm here. Um, so imagine... Imagine, so that's the way they drive like in the UK, Australia, India, a few countries in Africa, and a few in South America, and maybe some other places. But imagine if we all dared each other after this service is done to drive home according to like their rules on the left side of the road, what would happen? Collision, right? Like that would be a bad idea because we'd be driving headfirst into oncoming traffic. Well, in a way, that's what Jesus is inviting us into. He puts us on a collision course in his kingdom with the value systems of our culture. And so the world says, pursue comfort. Like that is gonna be your highest value. Get comfortable, secure that. But Jesus says, no, pursue righteousness. The world says, follow the standard in your heart. That's like the the main point of every Disney movie ever. Follow your heart, right? It's like, I've already seen this 100 times. But Jesus says, no, no, follow me, follow me. The world says you're rich when you own wealth, but Jesus says, no, actually your wealth owns you. And you're not gonna be rich until you trust your father so much that you can give your wealth away and just depend on him for your provision. The world says there are lots of options out there and they're all good, just pick a path, follow it sincerely, but Jesus says, no, 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 all those paths lead to death. If you want life, choose me. I'm the only way to the Father. So when you identify with Jesus, you become a resident alien in the world. And brilliantly, Jesus uses this parable and he, he ties it to, like, he kind of illustrates all of human history in this one little story in four movements. First, there's the good beginning. Then there's uh, this period of, of um, I'm sorry, there's the good beginning. Then there's what we're just going to call um, agricultural anarchy. <laughs> and then there's this period of growing intention, which is where we are now. And then there's a harvest. And each one of those ties to this pivotal point in human history. So let's look at um, the good beginning, starting in verse 24. So what does it say? It says, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. Okay, so we already looked at the answer key. So what is the field? The world, right? Okay, so not the church. It's kind of important. We'll show why later. The world. Uh, Who is the man who sowed the good seed? Jesus, the Son of Man, which is the prophetic title for Jesus. Yep. And uh, what or who is the good seed? It's people of the kingdom, right? Okay. So here's what Jesus is doing it's brilliant. He's, He's using this word good and he's tying it to the first page of the Bible. He's saying, this is what this stands for. So, what happened? Like, first page of the Bible, page one, what do we read? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? He created the heavens and the earth. Uh, he, He brought order and beauty out of chaos so that he could put the people in it that he had made. He made this beautiful garden. He put people in it to co-rule with him and to tap into all the raw potential of creation and bring about more beauty and to, to grow families and neighborhoods and cities. And it was good, right? Seven times on the first page of the Bible, God looks at what he made. He says, this is good. It's so good. It's only good. But then what happened? Well, That didn't last super long because by page three, uh, an enemy enters the scene, a deceiver, an agent of chaos in the form of a serpent. And what does he do? He, He twists God's words and he tries to get the humans to believe a lie about God, that God's holding out on them. That God has defined what is good up until now, but he said if you want to be like God, what you need to do is take the fruit of this tree that he's forbidden, and you need to define what's good and evil for yourself. That's what was happening there. And Jesus, Jesus touches on that in the parable. He says in verse 25, and this is the agricultural anarchy part, he says, but while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. And the owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? It's weird that there's weeds in the field, right? Why is there evil in God's good kingdom? That's a really good question that we're not going to answer here maybe another time. Jesus gives a very short answer. He says that an enemy did this. An enemy did this. So uh, really fascinating. The Greek word for weed here is this word zizanion. And it's this weed that grows in weed fields, in, I'm sorry, in uh, wheat fields in that part of the world. And the thing about Zizanian is that it's almost indistinguishable from wheat while it's growing. And even a few grains of this weed could cause this huge infestation that would be a problem for a long time for a wheat farmer. There it is. But the worst part, the worst part about this Zizanian is is that when it's mature, its seeds turn black and it's actually toxic to humans. It's a poisonous weed. So... So let's say you're, you're a first century person. You're hearing Jesus tell this story. There's gonna be this kind of vitriol kind of reaction. You're, you're just gonna be like repulsed. How could an enemy do this? I mean, this is the worst kind of betrayal. The, like how could one human do that to another human? It would be kind of like me telling you a story about someone who sneaks into a hospital and switches out like all the baby formula with anthrax. This is despicable human behavior, or like another modern equivalent might be um, like a computer virus, it's just pervasive, it gets everywhere. So I actually have a computer virus story, can I tell you this, okay. Um, And I was the enemy in this story, so beware. so let's see here. The last church I worked in, in Reno, uh, had has the staff team. We all shared an office, the offices together and love them dearly. And there's one person in particular that, um, she was like my pastoral coach and she was brilliant and godly and she knew everything. And, um, and I loved her and I loved to get under her skin <laughs> too. And so one thing about working in an office with me is that um, you shouldn't leave your door open and your computer logged in. Because when you do, you're basically asking me, begging me to put something on your computer. Um, so she did that. What was I supposed to do? Not put a prank on her computer? So I did. Uh, and what it was is this little program that uh, puts a very realistic fly on your screen that kind of walks around. And like the program hides in the background so you don't really know it's there, you just see this fly. And so I like sat in my office and was waiting and I hear her come back and she's like, ew, and she starts clicking around. And oh, by the way, um, with this program, every time you click, another fly pops up. (laughs) So she's like, what is going on? And there's no X to like close the program. Uh, And after 15 or 20 minutes, I finally felt bad enough that I went and said, sorry, it was me, and I uninstalled it for her. And then I got an email from my boss, my senior pastor. He was like, this should go without saying, uh, but please don't plant computer viruses on work computers. I was like, okay, (laughs) sorry, you know, like, all right, lesson learned. Uh, So uh, anyway, sorry for that. Trill. Um, so what's the point? What's the point? The point is that God didn't create evil. He didn't create evil. And that's huge. That's huge. It's one of the most misunderstood things in the world about God. He didn't create evil. What, what evil is, what the Bible tells us, is that it's a counterfeit movement. It twists the good that God created it sets itself up against God. And the way it does that is by enlisting people through lies. This anti God kingdom led by the devil, it works by putting words in God's mouth, by stirring up controversy about Him, by taking them out of context. And, and this is super important. The bad seed is not the enemy in the parable. The bad seed is not the enemy, the enemy is the enemy. The bad seed are people who have bought into the lie and they've disassociated themselves from God's good rule. That's what's going on here. So is living in the kingdom of God confusing? It's super confusing. It's so confusing. Why is that? Well, because people of the kingdom sometimes do bad stuff. And people who have disassociated themselves with the kingdom sometimes do really good stuff. So it's super confusing, right? Uh, in 2005, my wife and I got married and, and uh, there were two pastors who officiated our wedding. There, there was, um, one was my father-in-law, a godly rock of a man who'd been serving in the church for a quarter of a century at that point. And the other was a good friend of ours, a kind of a mentor, pastor, who had poured himself into us. And, and we we. Before God and before these pastors, we made our wedding vows. And seven years later, both of these men, these godly men that we respected, were caught in adultery and had to resign from their churches. Sometimes godly people do bad stuff, so it's confusing. And I love this quote by Tim Keller. It says, Sin infects us all, and we cannot simply divide the world into the heroes and the villains. And if we did, we would certainly have to count ourselves among the latter as well as the former. There are a lot of weeds out there that live their whole lives thinking they're wheat. They look like wheat, they act like wheat, but the difference comes when the wheat matures and bears grain and the weeds mature and its seeds are toxic. So now what? I mean, this is a big problem for people of the kingdom. And and I I think that the next movement in this parable really shows us what we are to do as people in the kingdom. So I, I just call this movement growing with tension, growing with tension. So the servants asked him, this is verse 28, do you want us to go and pull them up? Do you want us to go and pull up the weeds? I mean, that's a great question, right? Let's just get rid of the problem. The answer of of, uh, the sower, the landowner, is is really surprising. He says, no, don't do it. Because while you're pulling up the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. So why why doesn't the landowner want the weeds pulled? For the sake of the wheat, right? To protect the wheat and give the wheat time to grow and bear fruit. Because that's what God's after. God's after people who grow and mature and bear fruit. That's, what, that's the wheat's only job in this story. So what's Jesus doing here? Well, I think he's, he's rejecting two great pitfalls that his followers have tripped over again and again for thousands of years. One of the pitfalls is the pitfall of using force and coercion to bring about his kingdom. So think crusades. Big mistake. And the other pitfall is withdrawing from the world. So first, he's rejecting violence and coercion is bring, bringing about his kingdom. I mean, so how do human movements normally g- gain traction in the world? Well, there's usually some sort of uprising, right? There's a, there's a movement, and now it's on Twitter. You can use Twitter, and you give your movement a name and a hashtag, and there's protests, and sometimes there's violence, and Jesus says, no, my kingdom is not going to be brought about that way. He rejects this approach. And we see this later on when, um, when Peter uh, is with Jesus and this mob comes to arrest Jesus. And what does Peter do? He takes out his sword and he cuts off the ear of the servant of one of the priests. So you, you know that story? You know what I'm talking about? So he cuts off the ear, and Jesus responds by first healing the guy's ear and then rebuking Peter. So he's not rebuking the guy who's trying to illegally arrest him, he's rebuking Peter for thinking that his kingdom's going to be defended and brought about by violence. In verse 30, the landowner says, let both grow together until the harvest. And I think this is one of those instances where the English translation just kind of falls short and don't, doesn't let us feel the real impact of what is, what is happening here. So the word let is this Greek word aphiomi, aphiomi, which means to permit without opposing or prohibiting. It's, it's not like this passive just kind of let it be what it is. It's, it's this active like covering over this this shortcoming, it's covering over. So this same word, ephemi, in Matthew chapter six is translated forgive. So Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray and he says, okay, pray in this way, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive or ephemi, those who trespass against us. Jesus' kingdom is different than human kingdoms. It's not gonna be won through fear mongering or shows of strength, or protest, or bloodshed, or picketing, or slander, or political maneuvering. It's, it's won through healing, and through care, and through love, and sacrifice, and hospitality. So the other pitfall that Jesus is rejecting is this pitfall of withdrawal. So the sermons, they they want to get rid of the weeds, but the landowner says, no, why not? Well, because in order to protect the wheat. And if you pull up the weed, you might accidentally pull up the wheat as well. So there's a huge assumption here. The assumption is that that the the root system of of the wheat and the weeds are so interdependent and intermeshed that you can't pull one up without doing damage to the other. So here's what this means. It means that the people of the kingdom are to be socially and economically, and culturally interdependent with the people who are not. So he's rejecting the temptation that anyone who's been a Christ follower for a, a time faces. And the temptation is to withdraw from the world to get more and more involved in, in Christian relationships, and Christian activities, and Christian media, and, and eventually be so removed from the non-Christian, uh, not Christ-following networks where we were that we're, we're just like unrelatable to them. And that's what we, that's what we do. We face this temptation to, to buffer ourselves from the world by creating this bubble, this protective thing over us and our families. And we, we, we don't have meaningful connectedness with the world anymore. And Jesus is saying, no, that's not right. And it can come to a point where Christians, Christ followers actually think they're making a difference by standing deep, deep, deep in their Christian, like Christianity cave and pointing outside and saying, the world is terrible. Don't go out there. Like we can get to that point. And, and Jesus rejects that. He says, no, don't withdraw. Be interdependent, be intertwined, be intermeshed. And there have always been and there always will continue to be Christian leaders who will stand before Paul Blitz and tell you to take one of these paths, either the path of force or the path of withdrawal. Don't listen to them. They're not speaking for God. They're Pharisees. They're equating Jesus' kingdom with a human kingdom, and it's not. So don't follow them. The last move, the last movement in the, in the parable is this, is this harvest, so um, so let's look at the last verse. It, it says, at the time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Uh, so I just want to pause there and point out um, that we shouldn't misinterpret this as, as a command from Jesus to burn weed. It <laughs> took some of you a little while, but you got it. All right. Um, I. I probably shouldn't have said that. <laughs> so normally, uh, normally my wife asks me, like on Saturday, do you wanna run your jokes by me before? <laughs> uh, that didn't happen yesterday, so sorry about that. Anyway, okay, so first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. I'm definitely gonna hear about that later. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. So what is this? Well, The end comes when the wheat's done its job. And what's the wheat's job? The wheat's job is to grow and bear fruit. That's it. It's very simple. And once that happens, there's gonna be the separation that takes place. So a harvest, a harvest is coming. And guys, we're not the ones to judge. God is the judge. Through his appointed agents. And he alone can tell the true believers from the counterfeits. And this is great news because what this means is we don't have the burden of deciding who our enemies are. That's God's job. Jesus gives us one rule about enemies. And what's the rule? Love them. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. It's really hard to do, but really easy to understand. And there's also good news because what this means is that vindication is coming. Because Jesus invites us His his invitation into the kingdom is an invitation to be misunderstood, to be misrepresented, to be pushed around. But the thing is, is that that won't last forever. A harvest is coming. There's gonna be a payoff at the end and you can have deep peace even in the midst of deep pain. And so these four movements of the parable really tie to four pivotal movements in human history. There's the good beginning, which represents the, the creation of God's kingdom in, in the beginning, it was all good. And then there's the agricultural anarchy which, uh, which d- illustrates the fall of man and the, and the rejection of God's kingdom by listening to the lies of the enemy and the, the rising up of this, this anti-God kingdom, this counterfeit kingdom. And then there's this period of growing with tension which is exactly where we are now. God's called us to grow and bear fruit, but there's tension and then the end is coming, the harvest, which is when Jesus comes back and he, he renews his creation. So what do we do with where we are right now? And that, this is what we're gonna end with. Uh, if you want to do a little bit of further reading in scripture, I would highly recommend just re- uh, reading Genesis, um, Genesis, Jeremiah chapter 29. Uh, so in Jeremiah 29, God writes a letter through the prophet Jeremiah to his exiles in Babylon. So they're literally resident aliens and God gives them these beautiful instructions for how to carry themselves. We're not gonna read that right now just for uh, the sake of time, but I do want to just give us a few uh, pointers that we can walk out of here with as we, as we try to follow Jesus and being resident aliens. So resident alien, two words. We're going to look at them individually. We're going to start with alien. So what does it mean to be an alien, a foreigner, in this world? Well, it means don't take on the values of the culture around you. Don't take on the values of the culture around you. So this is going to get under people's skin, but I think more than that, it's going to make you surprisingly refreshing and magnetic. So here's how this works. Um, you're at work, let's say, and, and your workmates are stressed out, anxious, negative. But well, what would it look like for you to, to respectfully resist that and instead bring peace? What would that look like? That would be refreshing. Uh, what would it look like, I don't know what your family gatherings are like, but let's say that there's negativity. Let's say people in your family gain power over one another by calling out their weaknesses and their mistakes in front of everybody else. So what if you reverse that? What if at your next family gathering, you said, you know what I love about you? And you call out things that God has put in them that they don't even know God's put in them. How would that transform your family? The world around us says, you know, follow your heart You are what you feel. But what if you said, no, 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 I'm more than that. I'm not gonna be defined by my sexual impulses and preferences. I'm gonna, I'm more than the sum total of my lust. I'm made in God's image and and he loves me and he defines me. What if we did that? Respectfully resist. That's what it looks like to be alien. Now let's talk about being a resident. So when you're a resident, you're not a tourist, right? There's a big difference because a tourist goes somewhere, and what are they looking for? They're looking for what they can take and enjoy and consume in that place. They stand on the outside looking in, but a resident moves in, and takes the good with the bad. And they 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 have skin in the game. A resident ties the their future to the future of the people that they're living with, no matter where they stand and what they believe. So there are three things I think that you can do with with the culture around you. There's there's consuming, you can consume your culture. Uh, There's critiquing, so you can critique and complain about your culture. But then there's cultivating. And that's what residents do, they cultivate their culture. So, So let's say you're a parent, you move into a town, you say, you know what, I love this town because it has a good school that my kids can go to. They're, they're going to get educated well. Well, that's, that's what a consumer says. and That's not a bad thing by itself. Uh, a critic might move into that town and say, well, the school's okay, but let me tell you all the ways it fails my expectation. And they go through the list. That's, that's a critic. But a cultivator, they see both of those things. They see the good and the bad, but they move in And instead of complaining, they join the PTA and they do what they can to make the school better because they've chosen to love the school. Do you see that? You you can look at church. Church is the same way. A consumer looks at church and says, wow, the music is great. The student ministry is great. The coffee is really great. It's from Rwanda now. It's awesome. Wow, I love my church. And they go home. A critic Goes, well, my church is okay, but let me tell you, there's this guy that comes down from this place up north and he's terrible, and when he preaches and and whatever, there, there's the critic. But then there's a the cultivator. The cultivator gets involved. They invest their time and their money and their, their resources and their skills. They serve, they give. They don't wait for pastors to start the ministry that's on their heart. They just go for it. And you can apply that consume, critique, cultivate principle to every single sphere in your life, your family, your workplace, your, your own personal life, your home. I mean, listen, if the grass is greener on the other side, it's time to water your own lawn. I didn't make that up. I wish I did, It's, it's smart. And, and this is what Jesus did. He came and took up residence with us. I mean, if anyone is foreign to the brokenness and the wickedness and the evil and the way people treat one another, it's Jesus. But he didn't stay a foreigner and an alien. He took up residence with us. He made this his home. And not only did he make it his home, but he went into the deepest, darkest spaces of our brokenness, and he lifted up our faces and he said, follow me. I love you. I have a dream in my heart for you and it's not this. It's better. And then, and then he faced the very punishment that faces his enemies. He was tied up and burned like a weed for the sake of his enemies. And he invites us to follow him. So let's respond to him. Let's pray. Jesus, your kingdom is good. It's so good. But Lord, we know it's confusing. We need your help, Lord. We need your spirit to guide us, to empower us, uh, to give us hope where there are situations that feel hopeless. Lord, would you teach us to take up residence and make home places that sometimes don't feel like home? Pray that, that the hope of the restoration of your kingdom would sustain us. Help us to be faithful followers. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.